Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Richard Ron. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I thank you all for joining us today. Um, I know many of you have been to these events in the past. Uh, Cato is the world's largest, best-known, most effective libertarian think tank. When I say most effective, we've got independently rating that we're the most cost-effective think tank in the world. Um, when we say libertarian, what it really means is this little book here. It's called the U.S. Constitution. You know, we're sort of the quaint people who actually believe in the U.S. Constitution. The idea of limited government, lower taxes. Can you hear me okay, or are we having a problem with the sound? Uh, we like low taxes, low government spending, less regulation, free markets, free people. We want the government out of your pocketbooks and bedrooms. And um, we think that our founding fathers got most of it right, and we've just strayed from that over the years. Now, last night, I had turned on the news, and Hillary Clinton was up there. You might have seen some of this, and how she said her smartphone, she used a personal thing because that was more convenient. Now. I'm not a tech whiz, and I'm in Hillary's generation. But even with mine, and I've got one of the older ones there, with the, I guess the iPhone 5, but I have more than one email account in this. And I know most people tend to that. That's not rocket science. And I find, isn't it sort of amazing that nobody at the State Department or the White House could figure out that you can have more than one more than one email account in, uh, in one of these things. Reminds me, years ago, I was an advisor to people in the Russian government during the early Yeltsin administration, 92. And back then, to show how powerful they were, they would all have multiple phones, because Russians hadn't figured out how to put more than one phone line in a physical instrument. And so you'd go in, if a person was high-ranking, behind his desk there'd be like three tiers of phones, like 12 different phones. And I was thinking, you know, the Russians hadn't caught on. The rest of the world decades earlier had figured out multiple phone lines. And here we are, 2015, and Hillary Clinton, the president, the White House staff, and uh, the State Department has not been able to figure this basic piece of technology out. Well, this is one of the major reasons we need limited government, because the people there, clearly, if they can't figure out how many lines you can put on the phone, do you really want them running your lives? We're lucky here in Miami to have a, a number of you who have helped out a great deal. But in particular, <clears throat> Rodolfo Milani has taken the lead and really helping us put Club Cato Miami together. And Rodolfo, originally born in Argentina, but went to the University of, of Texas and Thunderbird School of Management, and uh, has been in Miami for many years as the senior managing director of Dominic and Dominic. And uh, without uh, Rodolfo's volunteer and hard work, these things wouldn't occur. And Rodolfo, uh, I know you want to give our fellow Miamians here uh, a bit of a welcome. Rodolfo Milani 
After, <clears throat> after Rodolfo speaks, the way we'll do this, we'll have our lunch, and then we'll have our, I'll introduce each of our speakers, um, and we'll start that probably about quarter of one if we stay on schedule. Thank you, sir. And again, thank you for all the work you do for us. Thank you, Richard. Welcome, and thank all of you for coming to our third uh, luncheon in a series we call Cato Club Miami. We have another outstanding program for you today covering two topics that are very much in the headlines today, immigration and economic growth. We may find we don't agree on everything, but a healthy dialogue is how we achieve informed consensus and progress towards a better future for the next generation. Since men first started living in groups, there's been an ongoing conversation about the rights of the individual versus the needs of the collective and the proper role of government in the process. For most of human history, society was divided into kings and subjects, the leaders and the led. The powerful made the rules for everyone else. Then in 1776, a group of rebels came along and signed a declaration that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain rights that are unalienable. Later, they enumerated and enshrined these rights in the Constitution. These documents forever changed the conversation. The people were now masters of their government, and they possessed certain rights as individuals that no future majority or government could take away. They created what Lincoln referred to at Gettysburg as a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. This conversation continues today as people with noble sounding motives work to erode the liberty that we have been bequeathed. In my travels around the world, I've come to understand that think tanks like Cato are a uniquely American institution. Sure, there are think tanks in other countries, but they differ in two key respects from their American counterparts, funding and scope. Cato is funded by tens of thousands of donors, large and small, who are willing to write a check simply because they believe in the principles and ideas that it espouses. Most foreign think tanks are largely funded by a single donor, family, or organization, and usually focus on a single issue. They don't often outlive their benefactors. Cato is an explicitly nonpartisan organization. It opposes corporate welfare and crony capitalism as passionately as other redistributionist schemes. I support Cato because I like seeing my beliefs well represented in the marketplace of ideas. When I see a Cato scholar defending liberty, on my evening newscast or in my daily newspaper's op-ed page, I know that my confidence and investment are well-placed. Our nation's first great African-American leader, Frederick Douglass, once observed that the limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those they oppress. We must ask ourselves, how much are we willing to endure? The federal government has been boiling the frog of our freedoms relentlessly for decades, but slowly, so many haven't noticed. As Thomas Jefferson warned, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Supporting the Cato Institute is an excellent way to exercise that vigilance. Thank you, and now let's have lunch. Ladies and gentlemen, If you haven't finished up, continue on with your, uh, your meal, but I think most people are close to uh, being done, and I like to have 
plenty of time for our two speakers. Uh, our first topic is immigration, which of course is the endless problem. And uh, our speaker today has spent an enormous amount of time on radio and TV, many articles and a book trying to deal with all this. But immigration problems are nothing really new. Now, my earliest ancestors came over in 1638. And at that point, they didn't have passports, and there was nobody to say you are, are a citizen or are not. But people don't realize it was the War of 1812, which revolves somewhat about the concept of citizenship. Because at that point, the British were seizing a lot of our merchant seamen. They called them pressmen. What had happened is both in, the British Navy was always shorthanded. And um, <clears throat> so they would grab people off the streets of London or whatever and turn them into able-bodied seamen. But even by that time of 18, 10, 11, 12, the merchant seamen in the US, particularly out of New England, made much higher wages than the merchant seamen in Britain and particularly the people who were serving in the British Navy. So you had a lot of these Brits fleeing and going to work for basically US shipping companies. And the British didn't like this, so they would stop American merchant ships, grab our sailors, or try to identify if they had previously uh, lived in Britain or been part of the British Navy. And <clears throat> it got to the big argument about when are you a citizen? Because at that point, you could pretty well just announce what country you were a citizen of. And much of the War of 1812 really began over this argument of who was and who wasn't a citizen, and uh, do the British have a right to seize what we considered people to be Americans and they still considered Brits? Well, <clears throat> I said this is a never-ending problem, and our Cato expert on this is <clears throat> Alex Novoselic, and he, uh, I think probably most of you have seen him on TV if you, if you uh, turn it into news channels. They're, when they're looking around for experts, he's just about always on one or another. He's written a great deal, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today. And <clears throat> he has a, a book, uh, Open Immigration, Yay or Nay, uh, debating the sides of this issue. Uh, Alex was educated at George Mason um, and London School of Economics, in economics. And his grandparents were the ones who first fled to the United States of uh, fleeing oppression, as probably many of our ancestors, whenever they came, were um, either looking for economic opportunity or fleeing oppression. Anyway, Alex grew up in Southern California, and now we're very glad to have him at the Cato Institute in Washington. Alex. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for that uh, kind introduction, and thank you, everyone, for coming here today, for taking time out from your busy schedules, and for your uh, support of the Cato Institute. Now, immigration is a topic where I think generally there's more heat than light that's shed on this issue. So uh, hopefully, if I do my job, uh, there'll be a little bit more light than heat at the end of this topic. Now, there's one handout that they asked me what handouts that I wanted on this topic, and I opted for something that was not a Cato Institute production. 
And it's this complex little chart that's right here. Now, if there's one thing I could possibly ask you to come away with from this discussion, it's this map, which is a map of the current immigration system today and how complex it is. I find the most misunderstood issue about immigration today is just how impossible, virtually impossible it is for the vast majority of people to come here lawfully. Now, I could walk you through this um, very detailed. Uh, actually, this is highly simplified version of the immigration system. Um, Elizabeth Hall Jr., I mean, sorry, Elizabeth Hall, who is a law professor at Rutgers, said that the immigration system is second in complexity only to the income tax in American law. And I'm sure you all know about that, uh, that system. Uh, essentially, just to give you the four-minute spiel about it, or three-minute spiel, there are four ways to come to this country on a green card. One is to be closely re related to an American, so family members. That's how most are able to come. The second is if you're a refugee or asylum seeker. We set aside you know, about 80,000 or so slots for those folks every year. The third is through something called the diversity visa. It's about 50,000 people a year for, from countries that don't send many immigrants here. And then the last one is if you're a highly skilled worker. Now, the rules for this are complicated. There's only 140,000 allowed every year. Only 7% of them can come from any one country. So essentially, if you're Chinese or Indian, you have to wait 10, 15, or 20 years. But if you're from Iceland, you can come right in. Um, yeah, the firms that hire you have to sponsor you and pay between ten dollars and $35,000 in legal and government fees. And the other regulations just go down the line. Now, if you noticed, one category that's missing is a low-skilled worker who doesn't have family here. There is no green card category for a low-skilled worker to come here unless they're closely related to an American. Now, I want to say that again just to emphasize how different this is from America's past. There is no green card category for a low-skilled worker who isn't closely related to an American. If we applied these laws backwards in time to the 19th century when a lot of people came from Italy and Ireland and other places, virtually none of them would have been able to come here lawfully if our laws applied back then. Because back then, most of these folks were low-skilled, a lot of them didn't have family here, and that, I think, this is the big problem with our immigration system, is that it's so regulated, so clogged, and there's no legal way for most people to come here. That's one reason why we have this problem with illegal immigration. Now, one of the questions is, why do people want to come to the United States? Now, there's a lot of different reasons, but the main reason is economic opportunity. Economists have this sort of complex equation they use called a place premium, and what it is, is they take a look at wages for identical workers across countries. So how much more will a Mexican make in the United States with the same education, or a Guatemalan, or a, an Indian? And they find that the average Mexican, the, the typical Mexican, can expect a three-fold increase in income just from moving here. Uh, Guatemalan, three-fold. Indian, six-fold. Vietnamese, six-fold. And a Haitian, a ten-fold increase. And that measurement of income takes account of differences in the cost of living between their home countries. For most developing nations, the median difference is a fourfold increase in income just from moving to the United States. Now, there's no reason why, you know, there's no mystery to us why that is. 
In the United States, we have more capitalism than most other countries, more free markets, contract rights, property rights. We have better institutions. As a result, people are more productive here. They can make more things. You can keep more of what you earn. You can invest it. This is the secret that we know about the free markets, why free markets and capitalism leads to better results. It's also why people make more money here, why they're more productive here, because productivity is what determines wages going forward in the United States. Now, immigration, what it does to this economy is it increases the size of the economic pie. It increases the number of workers, expanding the productions that can occur here, the amount of things that can be made. It also increases the number of entrepreneurs. Immigrants are about twice as likely as a native-born American to start a business in any given year in the United States. Also, uh, they're consumers. This is one of the sort of uh, simple things that is often forgotten is that uh, immigrants uh, spend a lot of money in the United States. So when we think about the economics of immigration, most people think about the increase in the supply of workers, right, and how that will lower wages. We think about that. More workers mean lower wages. But they forget the opposite side, which is more people living here increases demand for workers. Uh, one of the uh, commandments of free market policy analysis is thou shalt do a dynamic study. Thou shalt judge the economy dynamically. My friends on the left uh, fail to do this when it comes to taxes. They often say, oh, we can double the tax rate and get double the tax revenue. Well, we, we know that's nonsense, right? If you double taxes, people aren't going to work as hard. They're going to hire better accountants. They're going to hide their income. And revenue is not going to double. Well, when we increase the number of people in this country through liberalizing immigration, we have to do a dynamic analysis as well. And what those find is that immigration dramatically increases the size of the economy the wages for Americans, and economic growth in the long run. Now, I'm going to talk about two issues uh, with immigration that intersects with my research. And they're going to focus on basically two, two ways of viewing it. One is going to decrease the costs of immigration to the American taxpayer. And the second is how to increase the economic benefits for Americans. I think that's a pretty common sense way of looking at it. How do we decrease costs and increase the benefits? So I'm going to look at the first one is going to be about the welfare state. How do we build a wall around the welfare state to prevent immigrants from taking advantage of it going forward? Now, I think we need a few facts first uh, to set this up. One is, what is the current law on immigrants using welfare? If you are a legal immigrant on a green card, you have no access to means-tested welfare for the first five years that you were here. Now, there are small exceptions for this on the state level, emergency medical care, things like this, but for almost all programs, this holds across almost all states in the United States. Illegal immigrants have no recourse to means-tested welfare benefits, with the exception of emergency medical care. What's interesting is, and we did some Cato research on this topic, is that poor immigrants actually use less welfare than poor Americans uh, when, when they are eligible for these programs right now. Now, regardless of that, and part of the reason for that is that uh, the welfare state is designed to help three groups of people in the United States, primarily. Uh, it's primarily designed to help sick elderly women. Sick, Medicare and Medicaid. The elderly, we can think of Medicare and Social Security. And uh, women. A lot of programs like temporary assistance to needy families, food stamps, women's infant and children, other programs like that are designed for single mothers whose husbands have abandoned them. However, most immigrants are healthy young men. So there's a fundamental disconnect between who the welfare state is, is designed to help in the United States and who these people are. 
not to mention the legal barriers that prevent most of them from using it. Now, if you're like me and you dislike the welfare state for everybody all the time, which I do, we can do even better than this. We can build a higher wall around the welfare state than what currently exists now. And I actually authored a paper a year and a half ago uh, with an immigrant from the UK who was here who got her legal status revoked and had to return, uh, sadly. But it's called How to Build a Wall Around the Welfare State Instead of Around the Country. And we are the only think tank in Washington, D.C. that specifically pointed out every law that needs to change to deny all means-tested welfare benefits to all non-citizens in the United States. We are the only one who ever did that in all of Washington, D.C. My opinion is that we need to use immigration as a way to push back against the welfare state not using the welfare state to push against immigration. So that is a lot of the focus of how we take a look at a lot of this. Now the second point I want to talk about is increasing the benefits from immigration, because denying welfare more thoroughly than we do now would decrease the costs. And I think this uh, is resolve, revolves around what I like to call sensible reform. And sensible reform does two things. First, it increases the economic benefits, and second, it solves the problem of illegal immigration going forward. Now, I think that the illegality that's going on is a travesty, and it's a big problem we need to fix that going forward. But I think the way that we fix that is by changing a lot of the rules that are on the books right now for the legal immigration system, bringing it back down to this. This, I think, is the root of the problems, is how complicated the current system is. And I'm going to give you a historical example. In 1952 in the United States, there were over 2 million illegal immigrants almost entirely from Mexico. By 1955, however, that number had dropped down to fewer than 200,000, a 90% reduction in just a three-year period. Now, what happened in that period of time? Well, what happened was the government created something called the Bracero Guest Worker Visa, which was a visa program that allowed workers from Mexico to come here legally for a year to work and to go back and forth, to come legally, then leave, and then they can come legally again. What the Border Patrol did is they drove around for this three-year period, they rounded up 1.8 million people, drove them down to the border, made them take one step over the border into Mexico, one step back into the United States, handed them a work visa, drove them back to their farm the next day. They also went to farms and legalized people on the spot and handed them this temporary work visa. As a result of that, American employers who were employing them learned that they could hire a legal worker, a legal one, easily, so they didn't hire illegal workers anymore. And then the Mexicans who were coming, who wanted to come, realized they could get a visa and come legally. As a result, the total population of illegal immigrants dropped by 90% in this period of time, and the number of people crossing the border illegally dropped by 95%. This took place at a period of time when the number of Border Patrol agents actually decreased. They were able to do more with the smallest number of Border Patrol than we've been able to do with a Border Patrol now that's over 25 times bigger in terms of total numbers. And they did that because they changed the rules of legal immigration. They made it possible for a worker to come here legally temporarily, go back and forth, and to come back and forth and work above board legally in the system that we have now. Now, the one thing that we have missing today is this legal way to come and work temporarily and go back home. We don't have that now. If we had that problem, if we had that system going forward, we can uh, basically end this problem going in, in the future. One of the great failings of the 1986 Reagan amnesty 
was that it did not create a guest worker visa program that works. It did not create a legal way for these people to come. Ronald Reagan supported such a system. He supported the Bracero program, uh, recreating the system, but the labor unions opposed it. Uh, now, you might ask yourself, this Bracero guest worker visa program, why did it end? Well, it ended in 1965 because labor unions led by Cesar Chavez, uh, who were trying to organize agricultural workers, saw these Bracero guest worker visas as competition. Like a lot of good things in this country, labor unions killed this program. And you can take a look at a chart. After 1965 is when you see the increase in illegal immigration. The labor market still demanded these workers, but what happened in 65 is they got rid of the legal way to come here, creating a black market. I think we can fix that black market going forward. I think we can create a legal way for people to come, and that will solve almost all of our problems and decrease the illegal immigrant population dramatically going forward. In conclusion, I want to say, Immigration reform is positive for the American economy, but we can make it more positive. We can build a higher wall around the welfare state, which I think we should do for everybody, but we should do it for this situation especially. And we can create a workable guest worker visa program that allows low-skilled workers to come here temporarily and legally that will allow our immigration enforcement to focus on those people who we absolutely want to exclude from this country. Immigration enforcement can work only if the laws work better going forward. So I think we can have the good of immigration and reject the bad. Thank you very much, and I'm willing to take any of your questions right now. Uh, yes, yes, uh, yes, sir. I, uh, you know, I see this, I see this uh, diagram you have here, and, and you rightly point out there's this, this enormous canyon between the legal route and what people actually need on the ground. And it seems so unlikely to me that the federal government is going to change this process anytime soon. In fact, the, uh, the reforms that I see are basically much of the same with even more of a police state uh, border. Are you, uh, has Cato come out in favor of any sort of state, state initiatives in this regard? So, uh, thank you, great question. I would say that the 2013 uh, immigration reform bill, which Senator Marco Rubio sort of championed, had an okay guest worker visa program. So to give you an example, now the guest worker visas for agriculture have to deal with four federal agencies, Department of State, Department of Agriculture, Department of Labor, um, and um, uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, it would have cut down the number of agencies that this guest worker visa would have had to deal with. It would have increased the numbers, decreased the burdens a little bit. Um, if you want to see a lot of good farmers use a lot of four-letter words, uh, basically ask them their experience with these agricultural work visas, and they will tell you they're unusable. So what Cato did was, and as far as I know, we're the first uh, organization in D.C. to write about this, was create a state-based visa program. Uh, we have them as the, in the handout table going back there, but essentially allowing the 50 states to experiment with their own guest worker visa programs. You know, a one-size-fits-all approach from D.C. doesn't work for almost anything else. I would not expect it to work when it comes to this type of thing. Uh, we've seen uh, state experimentation with things like welfare reform produce better results. I think we can allow the states to also experiment with what kind of programs they like. And you also get an interesting political result from that. I'd like to point out that the states governed by Republicans, which have better economies, would be those who would demand creating their own guest worker visa program 
as compared to states predominantly governed by Democrats that aren't doing nearly so well. So you change the political calculus where you have states like North Dakota and Texas who are clamoring to create this program. And I've talked with legislators in Texas who love this idea uh, going forward, Republicans, uh, who would want to do this. Meanwhile, you'd have a lot of uh, uh, states dominated by uh, Democrats and their labor allies who would be a lot more opposed to this type of system going forward. So I think that that is absolutely a way to go forward and sort of create a better system, uh, getting the states involved with this laboratory of democracy. Yes, ma'am. If I understand you correctly, you are simply changing a label from someone being illegal to being legal, and you are focusing on agricultural workers. What about the argument in non-agricultural areas where they say that immigrants are simply coming in to take the jobs Americans won't do? So um, one of the failings of the Bracero guest worker visa program was that it was just agricultural only. I think if we were to create a new system going forward that would allow new workers to come in, in the going forward, it would need to also apply to other industries where a lot of these folks work. I mean, what we don't realize now is a small percentage of current illegal immigrants actually work in agriculture. It's more in things like construction or retail or other things like that. Now, what I would point to is there's been a lot of academic economic work that has been done on the impact of immigration on wages of Americans across the board. And what you typically find is that these um, immigrants are attracted to areas with a growing economy. And then once they're there, they make the economy grow a little bit more and a little bit faster, including the wages for Americans who are there. So to give you an example, um, we think of labor, right? An increase in the supply of labor should lower wages. But the difference is there's no such thing called labor, right? There's different types of skills. So an immigrant typically either have fewer skills than most Americans or more skills. Most Americans are in the middle, so there's just not that much competition. To give you an example, if we let in a lot of gardeners, they're not going to lower the wages of people who are engineers because they're just different professions. You know, there's not that much competition. So what we see is like even Americans who have few, uh, low skills, you think they would compete with low-skilled immigrants. We don't see that because of the big difference. The biggest difference between low-skilled immigrants and Americans is language ability. So if you take a look at restaurants, for instance, the, language, the, uh, the, uh, the, the skill level is about the same, but low-skilled immigrants in restaurants do different jobs that are more lower paid. They do jobs that don't require communication. They are the, you know, the, waiter, uh, the, waiter, uh, the, the bus boys, they work in the dishwasher, things like that. That pushes the Americans up who have language skills and the jobs like the waiter, waitress, hostess, manager, where English skills are uh, necessary. So what we see is a growing market generally across the board, caused by immigration, uh, lifts the wages of almost all Americans almost all the time. If you want to take a look at places where Americans do very poorly, it's those where people are leaving, like Detroit. I would much rather be a low-skilled worker in a place like Houston, Texas, which is growing dramatically due to immigration, than a place like Detroit where the number of people is shrinking due to other problems. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, Marco Rubio and, and uh, Jeb Bush have both articulated their position on immigration. Of all the candidates out there, the eight on one side and the one on the other side, is anybody close to the Cato's position? Um, so uh, I'd say a lot of people have taken up aspects of uh, Cato's position. The main thing that I focus on is fixing the legal immigration going for, uh, system going forward. And you see people like, uh, for instance, Scott Walker. 
he's gotten a lot of flack recently for saying that he, you know, he actually opposes, you know, an amnesty or legalization. But when it comes to fixing the legal immigration system, he's totally on board. Uh, with expanding the guest worker visa program for high-skilled and low-skilled workers. Ted Cruz is on board uh, with that. Rand Paul is on board with that. Um, most of these folks support revamping the legal immigration system. So I, I think there's not nearly as much difference between Cato's position and a lot of the mainstream Republican position that is made you know, hay of in the media. I mean, I work almost entirely with Republicans on the Hill uh, when I go up there. It's the Democrats who don't like legal immigration. Uh, yes. Uh, how do you connect the problem with immigration with the problem with the drug trade? So um, they are, of course, related in some ways. They are related in the sense that a lot of it goes on along the southwest border and issues like that. Um, but I would say fundamentally uh, immigration follows a different path uh, in terms of when it surges or when it doesn't surge. So drugs... Illegal drugs keep increasing so long as they're illegal. Immigration ebbs and flows based on demand for uh, workers in the market. But I'd see the same sort of fundamental problem, uh, and that is that most drugs, with the exception of a few states now, like Colorado and Washington that have legalized marijuana, uh, it's a black market. A lot of immigration coming in is also a black market. And I hate to admit this as a libertarian, but we can't regulate a black market. We can only regulate a legal market. So if we want to solve a lot of these problems, if we want to solve the problem of violence associated with the drug trade, if you want to get immigrants out of the hands of coyotes and decrease a lot of the crime along that, we need to channel it into a legal market. And generally, that's what our ancestors did with prohibition. I mean, they didn't lock up every bootlegger. They made it legal to drink again. And I think that's what we need to do with a lot of uh, drugs when it comes to the drug war, as well as with a guest worker visa program with immigration. I don't think there's any question that uh, recent generations of immigrants have uh, failed to assimilate to the degree that prior generations have. Now, I think perhaps it's the multicultural sort of salad bowl or mosaic model that's taken hold in the last few decades as opposed to the former melting pot model, which uh, sort of demanded more in terms of, uh, of cultural assimilation. What do you see as the, as the uh, uh, given the fact that we are dealing in the multicultural environment and, the, and failure to assimilate, what do you think the social and cultural repercussions of bringing in large numbers of people who may have different political traditions uh, and different values for some of the, you know, the rights that we have here uh, in terms of you know, watering down our commitment to those rights? Thank you. Uh, that's, that's a great question. It's one I've done a lot of research on. Uh, I went to public school in Southern California when it was really lefty and crazy. Um, so I can tell you this. Uh, what they teach kids in schools is really, really a travesty in public school. It's really pathetic. But the good thing is they teach it so poorly nobody learns anything. <laughs> so I think it balances out pretty well. Um, what George... What George Will likes to say, and what I think is correct, is that the melting pot of schools where everybody does, uh, you know, is involved in sex, drugs, and rock and roll does a much better job of assimilating people than we give it credit for. I mean, I didn't listen to my teachers when I was in high school, and uh, who in here did? Um, we've never relied on the public schools or things like that to teach important lessons to people, ever, because they're terrible at it. It's like asking the post office to deliver your mail on time. 
And uh, so I, I, I just disagree in the extent that I think that we failed in terms of assimilation. To give you a, 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 some, some examples, the most famous Irish American in the mid-19th century was a fellow named John Hughes. He was one of the archbishops of New York and the Catholic Church. Now, there were a lot of anti-Catholic riots going on at the time. Uh, St. Louis, hundreds of Catholics lynched in anti-immigration riots and things like this that were going on. People were upset about this. He said in 18, uh, I believe it was in 1850, he said, if a single Catholic church is burned in New York, the city will become a second Moscow, which is a reference to Napoleon burning Moscow to the ground. Now, no church was burned, but I have yet to find an example of a prominent Hispanic or Asian American who said anything nearly as insane as that. Um, I've searched far and wide. Um, we've also done a lot of work at Cato about, uh, you know, taking a look at language assimilation, things like this. How quickly do people learn English? How quickly does their religious habits uh, more closely rely to Americans? How, how, more, how likely they are to vote and things like this. And what we found is it's basically on the same path of what it was 150 years ago. Takes about two to four generations. And from our perspective in the past, you know, it just looks like it happened real quick. You read your textbook about the Irish coming in the 1850s, you turn the page, it's 1940 and they're all assimilated. What you miss is that 90 year period of time where people were saying the same thing. And it's, you know, it's a multi-generational process. It takes some time. And what we see is today the third generation immigrants, the second generation are on track to doing this. Now we recently put out a report uh, last week or the week before about political assimilation rates. Because I'm concerned about that more than anything else. I think the way that immigration can turn negative is if uh, subsequent waves of immigrants basically become a bunch of socialists and vote against capitalism. That is the only thing that I'm really worried about when it comes to this. And to my great relief, to my fantastic relief, I took a look at this survey called the General Social Survey, largest survey in the United States done every two years. It allows you to track immigrants and all of their descendants onward. And it asks questions about your political ideology. It asks questions about what political party you support and your opinions on like 25 different policy issues. And basically, first-generation immigrants have opinions very similar to fourth-generation immigrants, with two exceptions. The one is they're much more likely to identify as independent rather than Democratic or Republican. And the other one is they think the government should do more. By the second generation, it's indistinguishable, fully assimilated in political opinions. But the first generation, when it says government should do more, that's a question a lot of political scientists don't like because it's too broad. Sure, do more, why not? What you do is you drill down and you ask, should taxes be higher? Should there be more welfare for poor people? Should Social Security benefits be higher? Should we do more to protect the environment? You ask all these questions, and immigrant answers are the same as the fourth generation Americans. No, 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 no. Or it's similar in these ideas. So I'd say that American has uniquely in the world been great at assimilating people over history into our culture. We also take a little bit of immigrant culture, of course. I mean, who hasn't liked Italian food? Uh, or other things like that. Or we put Christmas trees on, the, and uh, uh, we put Christmas trees up, which was a big German import, and things like this. And there's a lot of different things that we've gotten from other countries. But we've done a great job of assimilating people. We're doing it continuously now. And I think it's something where we truly, truly are exceptional, despite the best efforts of the government to uh, make us unexceptional. The 
the people that can pay to cut the line on immigration, the half million dollars or something you pay and come in, is there a limit on that, or are we encouraging these people? Obviously, you want them, but. Yeah, we, we do. It's called the EB-5 visa. Uh, so what it is is um, there's two categories for it. One is a million dollars. You have to invest a million dollars in the United States and create like 10 jobs and check a bunch of boxes. Uh, and if you do that, you get a green card. And if your investment goes well, then you basically get what's called a permanent green card and you can eventually become citizenship. Uh, and there's half a million dollar investment in sort of a blighted area. So if you want to invest in Detroit or something like that, it's a lower, or Cleveland, it's the lower barrier to get in. Uh, those are limited to only 10,000 a year and they're underused from that even low quota because the regulations are so onerous and so burdensome. So that's one area where I think we could very easily increase the numbers. Uh, there's absolutely no downside to it. It increases investment, and we get some of the most successful people from around the world trying to come here. Um, I don't know what the downside is. I haven't heard a good argument besides conspiracy theory stuff. Um, so uh, suffice it to say, I that's sort of the low-hanging fruit of the immigration system. One of the things that I also do research on is uh, adding a tariff to the immigration system, making it so that the numbers, you know, there's no cap, but set a price. People pay $10,000, $20,000, have the security features in place, but do that. I don't see what the downside is. Uh, all I see is upside. So that's one of the ideas that we're toying with going forward. Well, thank you very much. This morning, I had received an email from an old friend who's a retired professor of economics at Texas A&M. He was originally from Serbia, but he's very much one of us. And he wrote, worrying about people losing subsidies, we're talking about Obamacare, ignores the people who finance those subsidies. Why worry so much about protecting those for whom the government steals other people's money and not feel compassion for those whose money is being stolen. So uh, there's a lot of discussion about the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the big Supreme Court case on, uh, on Obamacare. And you see, I just noticed in the Miami Herald this morning, of how Florida, all these people getting subsidies, are going to lose them. Well, the money doesn't, isn't spontaneously generated out of Washington. It comes out of your pockets. You might want to think about that. Our next speaker is uh, Cato's Renaissance man. His name is Brink Lindsay. He is a, um, uh, he's our vice president for research. And maybe it's a problem of attention span, but he keeps getting into different fields and writing books on many different areas. Uh, most recently, he's been in an area as a, an economist I am particularly concerned with and that's reigniting economic growth in the country. Uh, this past December, Brink held a major conference in Washington looking at ideas where the impediments are to economic growth. And uh, Brink went to Princeton and Harvard. I hope you won't hold that against him. In fact, he's got a law degree from Harvard, but we try to overlook that. Anyway, my colleague Brink Lindsay. Thank you, Richard, for that kind introduction. Uh, very nice to be here. Uh, after a particularly brutal DC weather, it's wonderful to be in civilized weather again. 
so my talk today is a, a good news, bad news talk, and uh, I'll start with the bad news because there are social scientists who tell us these days that the number one ingredient of socioeconomic success is the ability to defer gratification. Uh, and I think this is a pretty successful crowd, so you're all good with this, so I'm going to bum you out at the beginning and then hopefully cheer you up a little bit at the end. <clears throat> All right, the bad news. Uh, the bad news is uh, we keep looking every quarter for signs of green shoots in the economy, uh, for signs that, that finally the economy is getting traction and, and revving up again. Um, it's been uh, it's coming up on six years now from the official end of the Great Recession, and still we're in this, uh, this game of <clears throat> a real robust recovery is right around the corner. Uh, my bad news is uh, that very likely uh, this slow, sluggish growth is the new normal for some time to come. Um, uh, all the major uh, uh, forecasts of long-term economic growth over the next 10 to 20 years uh, are now uh, <clears throat> giving this warning signal. Just for context, <clears throat> as far back as we have economic statistics, uh, the growth rate of the overall U.S. economy over the long term has been remarkably consistent at 2% growth in real or inflation-adjusted gross domestic product per person. So GDP per capita adjusted for inflation has grown about 2% a year on average from 1870 to 2010. Um, and if you look at the, <clears throat> the chart of the growth rate, you'll see squiggles, uh, and those squiggles are the macroeconomic booms and busts that are, make our headlines and, uh, and, uh, and that we uh, obsess over, but over the long sweep of history, there is this remarkable steadiness of a 2% growth rate. Uh, but now, uh, the leading uh, forecasts for economic growth uh, are showing, over the next 10 to 20 years, a growth rate in GDP per capita of between 1 and 1.5%. One so what does that mean? 1.5%, 2 uh. Uh, <clears throat> To get an idea for what it means uh, over a longer term, uh, first you have to take into account the miracle of compound interest, that uh, small differences in, in rates of growth uh, at the front end can lead to gigantic differences in, uh, uh, in growth uh, on the back end. Uh, there is a rule of 70. Uh, if you uh, take 70 and divide it by the growth rate, uh, you'll get how many years it takes for the economy to double. Uh, so at a 2% growth rate, the economy doubles every 35 years. At a 1% growth rate, it doubles uh, every 70 years. So in other words, the stakes here are uh, for a person born today, uh, is the economy going to double once over their life or twice? And uh, those stakes are, are really huge. So why uh, this pessimism about the long-term growth rate? It's not policy related. Uh, that's another reason to be depressed. But, uh, but the real deep thing driving down uh, growth forecasts is demographics. Uh, in, <clears throat> in particular, uh, uh, we've had an ongoing decline in the hours worked per capita. Uh, you can think of economic output GDP as two things, uh, hours worked per capita times output per hour uh, equals output per capita. So if hours worked per capita is falling, then output is going to fall unless output per worker increases. So you have to have productivity growth uh, to compensate for the falling uh, hours worked in order just to keep uh, the economy from shrinking. To get high growth rates, you will need extremely robust productivity growth to compensate for uh, this shrinking hours per capita. From the 1960s till, till about 2000, 
we had steadily rising hours worked per capita due to the confluence of women entering the workforce and the baby boom. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, female labor force participation rate peaked uh, in the late 90s, has been falling since then. Men's uh, labor force participation rate, the percentage of men in the workforce, has been in gentle decline for decades for good reasons, for spending longer time in school and for longer periods of retirement. Uh, but in general, uh, the mobilization of the workforce uh, is, has been unwinding. Uh, and part of that is progress, part of that is aging, uh, some of it is bad policies that are discouraging people from staying in the workforce, uh, but uh, just on demographic basis alone, uh, we are uh, likely to be running into uh, <clears throat> a, an economic growth headwind, uh, whereas throughout the 20th century, we benefited from this huge one-off change of moving women from working in the home uh, for unpaid work to moving out into the marketplace uh, and making GDP for a living. There's, there's no easier way to get uh, higher GDP growth than to get a higher and higher percentage of people making GDP for a living. That process has stopped, it has gone into reverse, uh, and unless we have productivity growth at the highest levels uh, ever recorded uh, in the best decades of the 20th century, uh, we're gonna have slower growth than uh, our long-term average. Um, productivity growth <clears throat> is very volatile and incredibly, totally unpredictable. So it could be there's going to be a deus ex machina and next month or next year we'll see that uh, that, uh, that uh, internet uh, fueled uh, productivity growth has come to our rescue and that we will have normal growth rates, but it doesn't look like that's the case. So that's the bad news. <clears throat> the good news is that uh, history shows uh, an inverse relationship between the external conditions for growth on the one hand and the quality of economic policymaking on the other. So we libertarians, free market types, uh, all of us know very well uh, not to expect optimal policymaking out of democracies. There's all kinds of reasons uh, why, how, majoritarian democracies can go off the rails and go in the wrong direction. Rational ignorance by the voters. They don't know what makes them rich. Uh, they don't have time to find out, so they have dumb ideas. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, you have the problem of concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. Lo special interest lobbies uh, have great incentives uh, to get uh, special gains from Washington that may slow down the overall growth machine, whereas the majority that pays a little bit uh, for these exactions isn't motivated uh, to lobby back. So you have lobbying mismatches. So there's all kinds of reasons uh, <clears throat> grouped under the, t uh, the title of public choice economics for us to think uh, that democracy stink at economic policymaking. Uh, but there has to be some floor on it because we're all growing, right? Every, uh, there are very, very few countries. There were countries in sub-Saharan Africa during the 80s and 90s that were having shrinking GDP per capita, but pretty much every country grows, which means there is some floor below which uh, economic policymaking won't go off the rails. Uh, and that is, I think, the universal appeal of prosperity and for a, the prospect of a better life for your children. So in a democracy, when economic performance starts to deteriorate, uh, people get upset, and uh, the government's poll rankings, uh, poll ratings start to fall, the opposition party's poll ratings start to rise, there starts to be political momentum for a plan B. Now that plan B could be worse than the status quo, of course, that's a problem, we saw that in the 1930s, but in general, uh, since around 1970, the overwhelming trend of worldwide economic policy has been to move uh, in a pro-market direction. 
uh, more competition, uh, more entrepreneurship, less government ownership, uh, less government control of prices, and who can enter the market. Um, and so, and in almost all of the cases, the big pushes forward for economic reform, for pro-market reform, have occurred on the heels of, uh, of disappointing economic performance. It is the spur of bad times that drives reformers uh, to, to the front and gives them the opportunity uh, to make things better. In the U.S.'s own case, the last major bout of pro-market deregulation reform uh, in this country occurred in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Looking back, we tend to associate uh, this with, uh, uh, with Ronald Reagan, but it was actually uh, a, a bipartisan affair, uh, and there was general reaction uh, against stagflation and a whole bunch of policies that had been considered politically untouchable because those lobbies that defend them are so muscular we can't take them on. Now, in this more fluid environment uh, with politicians desperate to figure out some way to, uh, to improve the economy, uh, they took on those interests. They did wholesale deregulation uh, and... Uh, uh, we benefited as a result. So, if, uh, if that's right, if this, if this new normal of sluggish growth uh, is really upon us, uh, that the bright side, the silver lining uh, to that dark cloud, uh, is that we uh, could very well be entering an era that is especially favorable uh, for good pro-market economic reforms. So, how do we take advantage of this window <clears throat> for reform. Uh, there are already a whole bunch of policy battles going on right now between Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives, uh, on important policy issues that have uh, significant implications for growth. Uh, we've got uh, never-ending conflict over uh, uh, tax policy, never-ending conflict over budget policy, uh, 20 years of incessant conflict over health care policy, uh, and now we're in the midst of ongoing uh, conflict over uh, financial uh, regulation. All of those are important areas, uh, but the uh, battle lines are drawn, uh, those fights are going on, and uh, we should root for uh, the pro-growth policies uh, to win. But what we need now uh, is uh, to take advantage of this, uh, of this window is to open a new front to uh, bring up uh, new reform possibilities uh, and new uh, strategies for reviving growth that don't rely on winning uh, these, uh, these ongoing uh, policy uh, battles. We want to win them, uh, but uh, we have an opportunity, I think, to widen uh, the, uh, the scope of, of uh, political action to bring new issues to the fore uh, that can make a difference. So what kind of new issues would those be? Uh, ideally, uh, they would be issues that don't already exhibit strong left versus right, Republican versus Democrat polarization. Uh, because these days in Washington, uh, once something becomes identified as a conservative idea uh, or a progressive idea or a Republican idea or a Democratic idea, then you can count on the other half of the uh, political spectrum hating it and doing everything they can possibly do to stop it from occurring. Both parties are always within striking distance of power these days, so it is in their interest to deny the other party win in power of any significant legislative accomplishments. Uh, the Republicans have played a pretty good game of that uh, over the past eight years. Um, and you can count on uh, uh, Democrats uh, doing the same to a Republican administration. Uh, so if we can find policy areas that, uh, that aren't already swept up into this kind of uh, toxic partisan uh, gridlock, uh, then that would be a plus. Uh, <clears throat> 
Furthermore, it would be great if, these, if there were areas where there was a, a general intellectual consensus that this is good economic policy. In other words, if you could find the economists who serve for Republican administrations and the economists who serve for Democratic administrations, if they both agree that the status quo is bad and that this direction of reform is a good idea, uh, then that uh, is a, a big plus because, again, then we're not dragged into this, uh, this ideological scrum. So what, and then finally, of course, these policies have to have an important impact on growth. Uh, uh, and what does that mean? They're, <clears throat> in particular, the most important way that we can, uh, we can uh, safeguard healthy growth over the long term is to make sure that we have a, a healthy policy environment for entrepreneurship and innovation. It is innovation, new products, new services, uh, new ways of, of doing things that is the ultimate basis for long-term economic growth. Uh, and so if we can find policies that are, uh, that are inhibiting innovation, uh, that sh those should be in our bullseye. Okay, so what fulfills this, these criteria? Uh, I'm working on a paper on this right now. Uh, it should be coming out in the coming weeks. But what I've identified is a general class of policies uh, that, that should be the target of a new pro-growth deregulatory agenda are what I called regressive regulation. This is regulation that inhibits competition, entrepreneurship, uh, prevents people from entering uh, into new markets, entering into new areas, uh, but does so in a way that redistributes income and wealth up the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, when you find situations like that, you tend to find left-leaning economists saying, yeah, that's, that's a bad idea. So when, <clears throat> when we're talking about regulations that go the other way, democratic economists are torn. Their, <clears throat> their economist part says this is really not a, not a good idea. But their democratic egalitarian side says, well, but it has its heart in the right place, and it's, uh, and it's pushing for constituencies that I sympathize with. And so, for instance, you see the minimum wage uh, is something that has fairly strong support amongst left-leaning economists, even though it's Econ 101, uh, that, uh, that uh, raising uh, the uh, price uh, uh, artificially will yield uh, greater unemployment. Uh, so if we can find areas where there is a general consensus, that will be that much stronger. And regressive regulation is one of those areas. Uh, the, the policy areas that I have identified that fall into this, uh, uh, into this rubric um, I'll be talking about it at great length in this paper, but just to flesh out a little bit now, at the federal level, uh, we have things like uh, uh, high-skill immigration restrictions. Uh, so this is a no-brainer for economic growth. Uh, it's for sure mass immigration, low-skill immigration will increase output. More labor is more input. More inputs means more output. Won't necessarily increase GDP per capita because a lot of those low-skilled workers uh, aren't going to add a lot of GDP per capita because they're not very productive workers. But high-skilled workers are just pure gravy for the U.S. economy. We already expend enormous resources educating uh, foreign students. Uh, a very high percentage of our uh, science, uh, engineering, math, PhDs go to foreign students. We invest in them, we train them, and then we kick them out of our country. Uh, so that's crazy. Um, secondly, at the federal level, uh, excessive copyright and patent protections. Copyright and patent laws, in their conception, are pro-innovation. Uh, but under this kind of lobbying mismatch uh, 
problem that I identified earlier for how democracies go the wrong way. We've seen both copyright and patent law uh, go way overboard in protecting uh, uh, copyright holders, i.e. Walt Disney Co Company, uh, or uh, patent holders, uh, especially uh, these days software companies, um, in a way that has, uh, that has actually made the environment very unfavorable for growth. So copyright law in its obsession with stopping illegal file sharing of people downloading music and movies that they like. Uh, have, have basically turned their copyright agenda into an anti-technology agenda. They oppose any new technology that makes it easier for people to access copyrighted material without paying them. Uh, they tried to do this uh, uh, with the VCR. Uh, you might not remember this, it was in the mid-80s, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 uh, that the Betamax was not a copyright violation be on the grounds that it facilitated uh, uh, <coughs> sharing movies uh, without paying for them. Uh, so just by the skin of our teeth, <laughs> we got uh, the VCR industry. But, but now, uh, ongoing campaigns against uh, websites and against new technologies that enable websites to do file sharing. So we have copyright actually treating its customers as enemies and, uh, and treating technology as a threat rather than an advantage. On the patent side, uh, patents make a lot of sense for chemicals and uh, drugs. Uh, where what's being patented is very clear. There's a chemical formula that tells you what's being patented. Uh, but for software patents, which we've seen an explosion of in recent years, and also so-called business method patents, like Amazon patented its one click. Boy, that was an amazing invention that no one could have ever thought of, but they own it. Uh, so with these patents, they're very vaguely described, and so it's very hard to tell uh, uh, who uh, owns what. Uh, and so if you're a downstream innovator, if you're having to access uh, a bunch of patented software to do your thing, you're facing constant uh, battles uh, of infringement so that now you have this defensive uh, patenting where companies will uh, run up huge, uh, try to patent everything they can or buy companies with big patent portfolios just to protect themselves from litigation. So Silicon Valley is spending more and more of its time, instead of innovating, just preparing for patent wars and that is a terrible misdirection of resources and ought to end. At the state and local level, uh, we have uh, first occupational licensing. This is something that, uh, that maybe you know about, but uh, <clears throat> about one-third of U.S. jobs now, you need the government's permission before you can do that job. You need a license from the state. Uh, we all know about doctors and lawyers. They've been licensed for a long, long time, uh, but uh, since the 1970s, uh, more and more occupations have gotten the government to uh, pass licensing laws, uh, which basically are protectionism. They're they're justified in the name of consumer protection, but basically what they do is they, uh, they uh, keep out new entrants and maintain old ways of doing things through the tests that you have to pass to do them, and they inflate uh, the wages of the protected incumbents. There are a thousand different occupations that are regulated by uh, at least one state, and as I said, uh, the percentage of total jobs regulated now is one-third. It was 10% in 1970, so this is an area where things are getting steadily worse. Uh, and here again, entrepreneurship, new entry, new ideas, new firms, that is the lifeblood uh, of economic growth, and we are systematically squelching it through occupational licensing. Finally, uh, uh, land use regulation, particularly uh, zoning restrictions and building restrictions in big coastal cities. Uh, Throughout all of history, as uh, Alex is, uh, knows, uh, migration has followed a very uh, similar pattern. 
you move from areas of poverty and low opportunity to areas of riches and greater opportunity. That's why people move. Uh, and yet, in the United States over the past 20 years, we've seen migration in exactly the opposite direction. People migrating away from our high-income, high-productivity coasts towards uh, Sunbelt exurbs, and it's being driven by housing costs, uh, increasing restrictions on building uh, in uh, big coastal cities, uh, especially New York and San Francisco, they lead the pack, uh, has caused huge uh, increases <clears throat> in uh, real estate prices, uh, whereas uh, places like Houston and Atlanta have absorbed enormous amounts of population without any big run-up in housing costs because they have liberal uh, uh, building policies. So uh, the problem then is that we are driving people away from our higher productivity areas to our less productive productive areas, and that is uh, a misallocation of resources. The most amazing uh, stat is that uh, during the past decade, the county in which Silicon Valley is located, uh, in which San Jose is located, uh, lost native population. Uh, so uh, during one of the biggest booms, in, in, and they lost population during the 90s as well. So during the biggest boom in American history, the huge, or in recent history, uh, the internet boom, uh, where people were making money hand over fist, the population in that area fell, which is, means that, that boom could have been so much bigger than it was because it was starved of fuel. So these are the kinds of issues, issues that we don't hear uh, a lot of partisan warfare about, and yet they're really important. They have big impacts on economic growth. Uh, and so uh, my, my working title for my paper is Low-Hanging Fruit Guarded by Dragons. So this is, <clears throat> regressive regulation is low-hanging fruit. Everybody agrees, economists on both sides agree, these policies are out of whack and they need to be changed. The only people who really staunchly defend these policies are their beneficiaries, the vested interests who are extremely politically muscular and will defend uh, those policies uh, with every fiber of their being, the dragons. So uh, we already have a bunch of left versus right uh, policy disputes uh, in which uh, the implications for growth are, are clear, but now it would be good to open up a new front of the public interest versus vested interest. Not a left-right uh, opposition at all, uh, but uh, a reform agenda that could attract uh, folks who haven't been bought off by the vested interests on both sides uh, in direction of positive change. I mentioned the last major episode of, of economic reform in the United States in the late 70s, early 80s. Again, I said, you know, we recall, we associate deregulation with Reaganism, uh, but in fact, a whole bunch of this stuff happened during the Carter administration, and it happened not only with <clears throat> support from the Chamber of Commerce and, uh, and, uh, and uh, free market think tanks, but also with support from a lot of important leftist center groups. Ralph Nader was a champion of trucking deregulation because he knew that the Inter Interstate Commerce Commission had been completely captured uh, by the trucking and railroad interests and was a corrupt situation. And so he campaigned for deregulation. The author of airline deregulation uh, was Edward Kennedy and his main staffer, uh, who rammed it through uh, the Senate uh, was Stephen Breyer, now on the Supreme Court. So <clears throat> there, is, uh, there is, in our uh, past experience with pro-growth, pro-market deregulation, real experience of strange left-right convergences that can drive things forward. Now, history never repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes, and so we can hope uh, that in this current sluggish growth environment, uh, we can seize upon and take advantage of new opportunities so that even if we're not getting richer as fast as we want, uh, we're getting freer uh, and that's, uh, that's not nothing. Thank you very much. Look forward to answering questions.
you mentioned a couple of things that I'm interested in. Uh, I'm not even close as bright as my husband in all of this, but I, we do share two children who entered college uh, in the last seven years. Um, what I'd like to understand a little bit better, uh, that you just briefly you might mention, because you said these foreign kids come in and get these coveted spots in college, but then we kick them out. Why aren't we putting our kids first in these colleges who work their butts off to get into these good colleges, but then they're in the last of the line? I mean, we literally have friends who send their kids to Argentina to finish high school in order to get into Harvard and Dartmouth and whatever. Number two, just one quick uh, aside, uh, you mentioned that uh, population had affected economy when the women entered the workforce. I'm a woman of the 70s. Yes. Um, who's having kids these days? I mean, one, two, whatever. Uh, the baby boomers had four and five. How will that uh, face us with the economy? Okay, first, what I was thinking about in particular isn't undergraduate education, but graduate education, uh, where, uh, so, uh, a lot of universities have, uh, have moved to uh, opening up more to foreign students because they pay full freight. Uh, and so they can attract rich foreigners and uh, help out their bottom line considerably. How much that is impinging upon uh, the chances of native-born Americans to get into good colleges, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have any stats on that. Uh, I think in general we have, uh, there is a, <clears throat> a very small elite of, of top schools they're insanely competitive to get into. Uh, there, I think uh, you might worry more about uh, uh, alumni privilege and athletic privilege than foreign uh, students. They're probably squeezing out more spots uh, than the foreigners are. Uh, but nationwide, we have uh, just untold thousands of, of institutions of higher learning, uh, and the vast majority of them are non-competitive. People who want to go there can go there. Um, what was your second question? Oh, uh, sure. So. Population uh, growth uh, absolutely affects the economy on an output basis. The more people you have, the more workers you have, uh, the more workers you have, the more output you have, the more growth you have. Uh, but on uh, GDP per capita, per head, uh, just having more workers doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have more output per person. Uh, so for sure, population growth uh, has slowed way down because of declining fertility rates. We still uh, have net population growth, our native population. Uh, is at basically replacement fertility levels, maybe a little bit below, uh, but we attract a fair amount of immigration, so our population continues to grow, but it's growing more slowly. Our immigration went down the last decade, uh, uh, the rates did because uh, the economy uh, wasn't doing well, and so it, we didn't attract as many people. Uh, but uh, in general, our economy is, uh, our population is aging, and our population growth is slowing, which means that the size of the overall economy uh, that growth rate is going to slow down. That is not necessarily inconsistent, however, uh, with, uh, uh, with rapid growth in uh, output per person. And competitive devaluations going on right now, or the strong dollar, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, so, uh, as far as debt, we were having a little discussion about this at the, at the table earlier. Um, absolutely, uh, the <clears throat> entitlement crisis, the long-term unsustainability of our uh, of our budget uh, process, uh, is is a dark cloud on the economic horizon. Uh, high debt levels are associated with lower growth rates uh, because they squeeze out profitable investment. Um, 
what is to be done about that. Uh, I'm uh, maybe it's a luxury I can a luxurious sort of attitude I can take because I don't work in this field day to day. But taking the longer view, I'm reasonably optimistic uh, that this is going to work out okay in the long run. Uh, Herb Stein, who was uh, in President Nixon's Council of Economic Advisors, came up with Stein's Law, which is if something can't go on forever, it won't. Uh, and uh, we can't uh, keep uh, uh, spending more than, uh, than we take in. We've had this unresolved political contradiction uh, in the American electorate for a long time, uh, and that is that the American people want more government than they want to pay for. Uh, so when uh, the last uh, uh, presidential candidate who proposed across-the-board tax increases, Walter Mondale, he got, uh, he got one state. Uh, and any time uh, 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 Republicans propose uh, uh, meaningful spending restraint, they get labeled as social Darwinists and they back off. Uh, so uh, I blame uh, not gutless politicians, I blame the voters. The median uh, voter uh, has uh, uh, incompatible ideas in his head. I want more free ice cream and uh, I want it to be free. Uh, so uh, how do we resolve this, comp this contradiction? Ultimately, we resolve it one of two ways. Either we raise taxes very high to pay for this welfare state we have, or we restructure our welfare state uh, to make it consistent with lower taxes. Um, I don't trust politicians to be principled or to be heroic or to be uh, statesmanlike, but I do trust them to be good at their job, which is getting reelected, and to read the lay of the political land. And to me, I see something very interesting, which is uh, that Republicans these days uh, have been biting the bullet fairly regularly and putting out there for public debate proposals for really sweeping changes in Social Security and Medicare. Uh, haven't gotten anywhere, but they have they put themselves out there. They grabbed that third rail. Democrats, on the other hand, haven't done anything in, of corresponding boldness on the tax increase side. Barack Obama, our most left of center president since LBJ, came in promising no tax increases for anybody uh, except for the top 2% with incomes above 250000 a year. And then when he got into office, he backed off from that even and had to raise a threshold to 400000 So here we had the most left-leaning, most progressive-oriented uh, uh, White House in decades, and they can't bite the bullet. They can't even talk about the kind of across-the-board middle-class tax increases that would be necessary to maintain Social Security and Medicare in their current form. So that, to me, suggests that our politicians' read of public opinion uh, is that when this ultimately comes to a head, and if something can't go on forever, it won't, so this will come to a head, uh, it will, the contradiction will be resolved more on the side of uh, entitlement restructuring and on the side of massive tax increases, and that, once we get past that, will, will be a big plus going forward. As I mentioned at the very beginning, Cato prides itself on being the world's most cost-effective think tank. We have no debt. We have a reasonable reserve. But to do meetings like this, I, I was one of them who conceived the idea of setting up these Cato clubs around the country. Our first one was Club Cato in Naples, and it's been very successful. And I think some of you have attended some of those meetings. And by successful, not just people showing up, but being self-supporting. Um, we don't believe in subsidies. And uh, to bring down uh, people like Alex and Brink and the other staff and everything, costs them. And they also have alternative uses of their time. 
And I'd like to see these become successful. I'd like to see Miami become very successful. And so our, uh, our development people, uh, they sort of look at where the money comes from, what parts of the country, and the more support we get from places like Miami, the more programs we can run down here. Um, sort of like the church, you know, you want a bigger church, <laughs> better preachers, <laughs> you toss more in. Anyway, anything you can do to help us, we appreciate because we do pride ourselves on trying to do the best public policy work in the world. We've got top-notch scholars, and we make a real difference. Thank you so much for coming.